Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. It's spooky season, so you know what that means. Yep. It's time to play Flashlight Ghost Storytelling with a Flashlight. For those of you out there who know and like Homestar Runner, or if you have no idea what I'm talking about, there's a link in the show notes. Look it up. You will not be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Memphis has had its share of haunted stories, but this story is one I just read about, which is kind of odd, considering we like the haunted things. Uh, But nonetheless, I was unaware of it until just recently. And while the subject sounds like it's about a Pink Floyd Thin Lizzy cover band, I assure you it's not. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, I call the story The Tale of Pink Lizzy. <laughs> a two-story mansion at 683 Fifth Street on the corner of Fifth and Georgia became home to one of Memphis's most iconic, yet not widely known today, ghost stories. Colonel W.J. Davey, the president of the Southern Bank of Tennessee, built a mansion between the years of 1855 and 1859, and he lived there until October 1866. Apparently, in 1860, Davey secured a loan from Colonel Robert C. Brinkley for $30,000 worth of stock in the Memphis Charleston Railroad, using his home as collateral. Unfortunately, the Civil War broke out, the bank was failing, and the military took over the railroad, rendering the stock useless. To avoid Brinkley foreclosing on Davy's mortgage, Davy decided to sell Brinkley the home for the cost of the bond and $15,000 to clear his debt. Over the next two years, Brinkley renovated the mansion into a school for girls, and in 1868, Brinkley Female College opened its doors as a boarding school, housing 50 girls under the headmaster J.D. Meredith. Upon opening, the college already had a reputation for being haunted by Davy, who was rumored to have gone insane after he went bankrupt. Our story begins on February 21, 1871. A 13-year-old blonde-haired student, Clara Robertson, was in an upstairs room of the Brinkley Female College, practicing piano when she noticed a little emaciated girl, about eight years old, in a dirty pink dress coming towards her. Panic-stricken, Clara ran to another room and jumped on the bed, hiding her face in the pillow. The transparent little girl followed her into the room and placed her hand on the pillow near Clara's head. After a few minutes, the little girl disappeared. Clara ran to tell her fellow classmates what happened, and of course, no one believed her. She ran home crying because of all the teasing and taunting from her classmates. When she returned to the school the next day, no one spoke of the incident, and Clara began to think it was just a prank. Her fears were only set aside for one day, though. The following day, the little girl appeared again. This time, there were other students present. It's not really known if the two other girls really saw anything or if they were just playing around with Clara. Regardless, they all screamed and ran downstairs to get a teacher. This time, when Clara returned upstairs, the little girl spoke to her, as the newspaper called it, like a perturbed spirit in Hamlet. The little ghost girl told her that there were valuables buried in the yard and she wanted Clara to find them. It was now apparent that the adults needed to get involved. Clara's father, J.C. Robertson, a prominent Memphis lawyer, spoke with the headmaster, Mr. Meredith, and decided there needed to be an investigation. Robertson was worried about his daughter's well-being, while Meredith was worried about the reputation of the school. The following week, Mr. Meredith decided to question the students about the ghost, while Clara was made to wait outside. While Clara was in the schoolyard, the little ghost girl appeared to her again. 
This time, when she spoke, she told Clara to not be alarmed. Her name was Lizzie and that she would not harm her. Lizzie told Clara that her family had owned this building and it was stolen from them. She wanted Clara to undo the wrongs that had been done to her family. If Clara could find the papers and other valuables buried in the yard, she could claim possession of the property as her own. And she also added that if Clara did not do what she had asked, then Lizzie would never do any good to or for anyone. After this incident, Clara told her father that she was not going back to school. Her father contacted one of his clients, Mrs. Norse, a spiritual medium, for help. Mrs. Norse convinced Mr. Robertson to hold a seance at their home. Several neighbors came over and gathered around the table. Not long after the seance started, it appeared that something had taken over Clara. At first she sat slumped over, but then her arms began to flail around to the point where she needed to be restrained so that she wouldn't hurt herself. Once she calmed down, she was given a pencil and a paper. She first wrote the name Lizzie Davy, and then began writing down, filling page after page, everything that had happened in the past week. As people started to ask her questions, she began writing down the answers. Lizzie, through Clara, began to tell of the valuables buried in the schoolyard. Under a tree stump, there was jewelry, several thousand dollars, and the title to the home. Men who attended the seance decided to go to the schoolyard and locate the stump and begin digging. Mr. Meredith agreed to this because he knew it was the only way to lay this story to rest. At this point, the Memphis newspapers went wild with reports of the Pink Lizzie ghost story. It was the talk of the town. Bars even started creating ghost cocktails for their patrons. Spiritual mediums started holding seances all over the city using techniques like table tipping, slate writing, which is writing on a small chalkboard, and tambourine banging to communicate with the dead. Clara began to attend some of the seances, communicating with Lizzie through slate writing. While the men were digging under the tree stump, about five feet down, they found a layer of bricks. During this time, Clara was at home playing when Lizzie appeared to her again, questioning why she was not the one digging for the valuables. She told Clara that she was to find them for herself, and then she disappeared. Clara immediately went to the school and told the men digging what happened. As she stepped into the hole that the men had dug, she fainted. Once revived, she told them that she had seen a glass jar with the valuables inside. Clara returned home, and Mrs. Norse was called over for another seance. Clara told Lizzie that she was not able to dig and asked if her father could take her place. Lizzie agreed, but was told once her father recovered the glass jar, it could not be opened for 60 days. Mr. Robertson and a crew of people went back to the schoolyard, and after about an hour of digging, he found a moldy jar containing several bags and a large envelope. He brought the jar home and hid it in the safest place he could think of, the outhouse. (laughs) Clara was sent to visit relatives until it was time to open the jar. She had been through enough stress, and her father thought she just needed to rest. Mr. Robertson had decided to open the jar at the Greenlaw Opera House at the southwest corner of Union Avenue and 2nd Street. The public could purchase tickets for $1, and half of the proceeds would go to Clara for her troubles, and the other half to an orphanage called the Church Home. Unfortunately, the public opening never happened. Prior to the big event, Mr. Robertson had guests to his home for a party and overheard some noise outside. He went to investigate and came upon thieves stealing the jar. They hit him over the head, rendering him bleeding and unconscious, and the jar was never recovered. Since Lizzie's request was never fulfilled, it appears a curse was put upon the school. Brinkley Female College closed shortly after the events in 1871. Mr. Meredith opened Meredith Female College at the corner of Main Street and Broadway. It survived for only three years. 
Brinkley had a hard time finding tenants for the home. He let it to the Corn family for many years in exchange for maintaining the property. They eventually were forced to move out as a man from up north offered to rent the house. Brinkley agreed but soon discovered that he was holding seances there and asked him to leave. The Corn family moved back in and took care of the property for several more years. The property was eventually sold and divided into apartments for railroad workers and then became tenement housing. As the area around the home began to become more industrialized, the Wurzburg paper manufacturer bought the land and moved its residents to homes of their choosing. In 1972, the home was dismantled and Jim Williams, a local businessman, purchased it and planned on reconstructing it on land outside of Jonesboro, Arkansas. Even though the home was gone and new warehouses were built on the land, it was rumored that contractors working at night would still hear noises, paper would fly off shelves, and drastic temperature changes were felt in the buildings. Apparently, it's not uncommon for spirits to return to new structures that have been built on the same site of previous hauntings. So what happened to little Clara Robertson? One of Clara's closest friends in school was Lula Franklin. She said that Clara was a changed girl after the incidents. She became distant from her friends. There were claims that Clara began to practice spiritualism in her home. It was also said that she became the second wife of a spiritualist, whose first wife's ghost would kick Clara out of her bed at night. But it was also said that when she was 18, she married a wealthy 72-year-old widower, and they had several children. Clara would pass away from tuberculosis. In 1871, friends of the Davy family verified the information Clara had given was true. Lizzie Davy had died in the home in 1861, and she was buried in a little pink dress. So was the story of Pink Lizzie an elaborate hoax made up by a bored, creative, mischievous child? Or did a young girl come back from the grave to seek revenge for her family? So we had a few people give us some spooky Memphis-related stories, and then we threw in some of our own as well. So the first story, the spooky story, is from my friend Dana. She writes, when I was in high school, there was a thing to drive by Edgewood before it was transformed into housing. I guess it was a school. Anyway, we were told that it was a school for special needs kids, and that if they were bad, they would incinerate them. Oh my gosh, that's awful. That is terrible. So, one night, we drove by as this guy was telling the story in a really creepy voice and said you could hear the ghosts screaming. So, he dared us to get out and listen. And when we did, there was a man on the porch with a shotgun yelling at us. Of course, we ran back to get in the car and we were tripping all over each other when we saw a man slumped over in the car in a Santa suit. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. We almost died. Silly now, but scary at the time. So, I love it. A good, scary urban legend. And I'm sure we've all done those. I dare you to go do this and then freak yourself out more getting up the courage to do the thing than (laughs) the thing actually being scary. Right. This next story is from Tara's dad. He has this thing where numerous spooky things happen to him. Seriously, he has far more happenings happen to him than most people. This is one of his Memphis spooky stories. When I got out of the Army in 1966, I went to work at the Memphis Supply Depot on Airways in Memphis. I was teamed up with a 20-year-old girl named Edna, who was an artist. We did inventory in the big warehouses that were sending supplies to our troops all over the world, especially Vietnam, which was going strong at the time. As I said, she was an artist, and she had been going to the Memphis Academy of Arts on Poplar Avenue. We were given a stack of IBM cards, and we would go to a warehouse and count the number of items in a certain location. 
if the inventory number matched the card, like if there were refrigerators in that spot and they matched the numbers on that card, we put the number we found there. We had been working together for about six months and she had gotten married and she and her husband were moving to Massachusetts where his family lived. They lived in a little one-room apartment on the back of a family home paying $10 a month for rent. I was paying $100 a month in an apartment on Ketchum Cove overlooking the airport with flight attendants and pilots living around me. Edna's husband suggested that I might move into their apartment to save some money. So they made arrangements with their landlord. Edna asked if I would like for her to leave all of her art as she couldn't take it with her. I said, sure, a pre-decorated apartment. Who could ask for more? Paintings, sculptures, even a life-size statue of her. That sounds like something my dad would say. (laughs) Uh, So after she moved out, I moved in, and another girl I worked with said her boyfriend was looking for an apartment. I said, yeah, we split the rent, $5 a month. That's not too bad. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Uh, The bedroom was laid out in such a way that the kitchen door was on the front left corner with the chest of drawers just to the right of it. The bed was on the left wall with two windows behind my head. The outside door was to the right of the bed. And in the corner, there was a nightstand between the bed and the door with a lamp on it. One night, I was laying in bed with the moon shining through the window bright enough to where I could see one of the paintings across the room. It was about 11 p.m. when the figure of a man stepped through the door and stood by the chest of drawers. He was bald-headed and was wearing a red plaid shirt. I spoke out my roommate's name and said, Is that you? Knowing it wasn't. And he said, me who? I said, if that's not you, we have company. (laughs) (laughs) And as I reached over and switched the lamp on, the man disappeared. (laughs) That Christmas, Edna and her husband came to Memphis to visit her mom, and they came by to see me. I told her about the visitor, and she said, wait, let me describe him. He was bald-headed and wearing a red plaid shirt. I asked how she knew, and she said she came home from high school one day, and one of her friends was in the driveway looking in through the window. Edna surprised her, and she said, I just saw a man in your house. Edna said, let me tell you what he looked like. He was bald-headed and had a red plaid shirt on, and the girl said yes. Edna took her in the house and showed her a picture of a man on the mantle above the fireplace. The girl said, that's him. Edna told her that it was her dad and that other people had seen him too. We think because of all the art that Edna had left with me, she had left something else in that little apartment. And that is one of my favorite stories that my dad tells because it's so creepy. If you can imagine waking up and seeing a man standing at the end of your bed, just (laughs) staring at you. Mm. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Daddy. That was an awesome story. So this story technically belongs to my whole family. And like we said, Dad has some weird connections to the spooky. So we all get to experience it every now and again. And this story is from my middle school years. I was about 13 and my sister was pregnant with my nephew. And our whole family loves antique stuff. And if you've ever been to my house, it is quite the eclectic mix of things that are 100 years old and things that are modern and brand new. But anyway, so my sister decided she wanted some kind of wardrobe for Scott's baby clothes when he arrived. So my dad called up a friend of his and purchased an antique wardrobe from him. And Dad's friend also shared Dad's love of relic hunting, and he kept this wardrobe in his garage with all his clearly haunted relics. Uh, So he brought this wardrobe home and put it in the baby's room. And from that time on, the room had a bad vibe and was honestly like 10 degrees colder than the rest of the house. I kid you not. Uh, I would go in there and it would freak me out and run out. (laughs) And uh, when Scott was born, he would never sleep in there. 
And dad used to say that he would sit on the end of the couch and out of the corner of our eye down the hall, he would watch something go between Scott's room and my sister's room. And one night, my sister said that she woke up in the middle of the night and I was standing in her doorway. And she woke up, told me to go back to bed and then rolled over and went back to sleep. The creepy part about that is I was at a friend's house that night. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, we ended up moving the wardrobe into the hall so that Scott's room would return to normal. Um, but the bad feeling was still there. So we eventually sold it. And that creepy ghost was some other person's problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And this last story is not Memphis related, but it is a spooky story that happened to the two of us together. And it happened when we stayed at the Stanley Hotel on a trip to see a couple of our friends that live in Denver, Colorado. And why is the Stanley famous? Well, if you're not a Stephen King fan, you may not know this. Uh, This hotel was the inspiration for his book, The Shining. Uh, The story goes that during a snowstorm, Stephen King and his family stopped at the Stanley because the roads were closing. And he found uh, found out that they were uh, closing up for the season as well. And all the staff would be going home. And through his power of persuasion and his Amex card, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, he was able to convince the staff to let them stay for a bit. He and his wife, Tabitha, and baby Joe, uh, that's Joe Hill, the author, uh, stayed in room 217. Uh, One night he had a nightmare, and that combined with their situation of being stuck alone in a hotel during a snowstorm became the inspiration for The Shining. And there are also several other reasons that this hotel is considered haunted. And when we decided to book our stay, we stayed in one of the spirited rooms. Yeah, we stayed in the cowboy room. Yes, and unfortunately, we did not get visited by the cowboy. However... Tara was bummed because apparently the cowboy likes to lean over and kiss girls. Yes, that's what I heard. I was super sad. I was really anticipating something happening, so I couldn't sleep, and I've decided that's why we didn't get haunted. But... We had a freak snowstorm that night. Yeah, we did. And uh, it was very windy, spooky, windows rattling. So we, we got some good creepiness from that. Right, right. And also, Alan got altitude sickness, so I thought he was dying. <laughs> um, I thought I was dying. So there, there is that as well. While we were staying at the Stanley, we took two tours. One was a historic tour, um, which went down into the uh, basement area as well. And it was really cool. And the tour guide was fantastic. It's a, a fascinating story. Honestly, if you ever get a chance to go to the Stanley, uh, it's a super cool story of how it started. And, and it's beautiful as well. It is very beautiful. And uh, and then we took a ghost tour. And it was a bad one. Yes. And not, not to discredit the Stanley at all. They no, to probably, no fault of their own. Yeah, they probably have great tours. This particular guide just started with the um, the the phrase, I only have one rule on this tour, and then 20 minutes later was still telling us the rules for the tour. Yes, so, so uh, we didn't have the greatest experience with that, and that's why we decided to venture off on our own right. after it was over. Right. After the ghost tour, we took a walk around the hotel taking pictures, and um, on the fourth floor, um, so in the hotel history, uh, F.O. Stanley, the man who built and operated the hotel, would invite his friends and family to stay all summer in the hotel as sort of an extended summer retreat. Yes, it was very bougie for the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, the fourth floor was used as the nursery and play area for the children that were brought in for the summer f- by the families. And um, on the fourth floor, apparently a lot of those rooms are quite haunted. It's the most haunted floor in the building. And so while we were walking around, taking pictures, looking for spooky stuff, uh, we came across this room with an unmarked door. 
And it had a, a modern key lock instead of the, the card locks that the guest rooms have. So uh, being inquisitive. Yeah, we, of course, were we were taking pictures of the room across the hall, which is one of the spirited rooms. Um, I believe it has a man's portrait on the outside, but I can't remember his name. It w- he was a captain. Yes. It was uh, a captain's room. Yeah. That's all I remember. Um, and it is the room that allegedly has a closet that will open and shut. And um, also, if you go in the closet and shut the door, apparently you might get your butt grabbed. Yes, he was a feisty <laughs> captain, apparently. Right. So we were taking pictures of the door uh, with the uh, placard in front of it. And through the door behind us, which was the modern key lock door, uh, we heard giggling girls. Which was, was kind of odd because, you know, uh, it was... Like we said, it was the nursery area, but this was a door that didn't have a, a key card. So we're like, hmm. Right. And it was locked. We, we tried it. And right, we, heard, we heard girls that were potentially playing with something, maybe jacks or a ball or something like that. Yeah. It sounded like something was being kind of thrown against either the floor or the wall. So like I said, we were very inquisitive. So we, we checked the handle. Because yeah. <laughs> so, why not? Right. Of course. So we went down to the front desk and asked one of the attendants uh, that was working the front desk that night, and uh, the response I got was, I don't know, maybe it's a ghost. Which is, you know, I guess what they're supposed to say. Right. Well, he was not saying it for that reason, but that's okay. Yes. So uh, we wandered around a little bit more and ran into somebody else who we were just asking about it, and he proceeded to tell us that it was a utility closet and that there were electrician's closet, electrician's closet, and there were no female electricians, and that everybody had left at like five. Right. So there couldn't have been anybody in the room, and it had been locked the entire evening. Correct. Yeah. So that was our our spooky encounter from the Stanley Hotel, and we're just going to say it was really spooky. It really happened. We're not going to question it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So, guys, thank you for listening to our spooky stories. We hope you've enjoyed the story we unearthed. And thank you for your spooky stories as well. Yes. Uh, Don't forget to listen to our next episode in two weeks. It'll drop on Wednesday on your favorite podcast listening app. And uh, check out our website at unearthedmemphis.com. Follow us on Instagram at Unearthed Memphis, Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901, Twitter at unearth901, or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. We love to hear from everybody. Uh, questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, compliments, you know, <laughs> flattery. Yes, that, that gets you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> or just chatter is appreciated and enjoyed. We love talking to people. Yes, and here's our usual disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility that some of these statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so that we are not putting out any untruth info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have things to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we've used, book titles, etc. to gather information. You will also find a link to the Homestar Runner (laughs) Halloween episode, which is my absolute favorite. (laughs) All right. So thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.